I just want you to know, I have um, I come this morning on the first Sunday of a new year. Those of you that have been around a while, you know I always try to bring kind of a message on the state of the church and where we are and where we're headed and what's happening. And uh, this morning is no different. But uh, I'm not entirely sure how the message is going to flow out. Uh, I've had difficulty, even though I've been working on it, preparing it, praying over it, thinking about it for a month now. Um, I've had some difficulty just kind of pulling it together, and I think partly uh, because I'm going to be rambling all over the letters of Paul and Peter, so if you want to open your Bibles after the book of Acts, we'll be in that segment. For a while, it's not one specific passage, but the other thing is that um, I have a tremendous burden on my heart, uh, not only for the church across the world, but especially in our country, but for this church. Um, The only thing that I can say to those of you that don't stand where I stand as, as pastor is perhaps the closest thing that you can come in identifying the feelings is as a parent. And I'm not saying that to distance you from me in any sense of the word, because again, those of you that know me well know that I shun all of those titles. I don't like to be called reverend at all. I only use that in hospitals and jails when I need to get somewhere. (laughs) And, uh, you know, uh, I appreciate the term pastor, but I basically just like Paul. And uh, I don't see myself as standing on any kind of pedestal or in any way being removed. God has given different gifts to everyone in the body. Everyone has something to contribute. And mine is not more important than any other gift. If you just had me, uh, first of all, uh, the service would be much less interesting because I would be the only thing going on. And uh, a lot of things wouldn't happen that, that the body of Christ needs. I don't see myself as standing out in importance. But when the call of God comes to be an under-shepherd of Jesus Christ and to be a pastor, uh, and, and those who understand the calling of elder in a similar sense, there is a, a connection, a love, a a burden of responsibility that comes to that office that is uh, is unique. It it goes beyond um, just simply loving each other to being jealous for you, to wanting to protect you, to want to guard you and keep you safe and to want to warn you of the dangers that will damage your lives and your souls, and to want to encourage you in the Word of God and point you to Christ. I have a a, a charcoal pencil sketch uh, in my office back there that is a simple black and white of a shepherd standing with one uh, rather uh, weak-looking um, sheep in, in per, per real danger, and on the rocky crag are two wolves that have their eye on the sheep. And the shepherd has put himself between the sheep and the wolves, and he's standing there with his rod, and his eye is on the wolf. And the look in his face, the good shepherd, is, Don't you dare. <laughs> And oftentimes, that's the feeling that I have. And, and this morning is no different. As I survey the scene, I was taught to do that as a paramedic. <laughs> survey the scene. Find out where the problems are. Look for the hidden dangers. And then begin to take action. As I survey the scene, I see that uh, the church in our country is in trouble. We are facing some pretty... Uh, heavy opposition, and we are at risk as a a church of being kind of sucked into the mindset of our nation. 
Now, that doesn't mean that the church around the world is going down the tubes. I'm not saying that by any means. But what I do recognize is that historically, in church history, there have been centers of great evangelical passion that have grown cold. Think, for example, of Germany during the Reformation. The light of God shone from that nation. And it was a great time in history as Luther uh, finally stood up to truth as God opened his eyes in the great Reformation, uh, which he intended to be a revival, but it turned out to be a Reformation because the church threw him out. But the light shone brightly in that nation. But think of where Germany is spiritually today. And then think of England. England and Scotland were, were among the great nations of the missionary movement of the 19th century. Their passion to win the world for Christ was unparalleled. It really started in England before it started here. And even before that, the Great Awakening started in England with uh, George Whitfield and the Wesleys uh, before it came here to Jonathan Edwards. And yet, look at England today. It is possible for the torch to pass because of people become less passionate in their love for God And God looks for a people who will love Him supremely above all else. And it seems to me that we are certainly at risk for the torch passing on and that the spiritual climate of the United States is waning. Those of us who love the Lord Jesus Christ and those of us who sit in this room this morning need to be aware of the trend. So that we do not go along with the status quo, assuming that everything is going to be all right and we're kind of on track. <coughs> You've all, all heard of the analogy of the frog in the kettle. That if you attempted to drop a frog into hot boiling water, he's coming out pretty quickly. But if you just put him in the cold water and turn the heat up, gradually he'll just kind of hang out till he cooks. And we must guard against that tendency to just look around us and kind of gauge the temperature by what we see happening. Because if we do so, we may find ourselves cooked one day. And wondering how it is that we lost our spiritual vitality in our life. And so I'm concerned. But I'm concerned most especially for you. Because you are my people. I will answer to God one day for how I shepherded you. I will be responsible to explain to God if there's such an interview that takes place. But as teachers, the Scripture says we incur a stricter judgment. I don't understand all of that, but I do understand enough to make me sober that I have a responsibility to communicate truth to you in a way that will protect you, in a way that will keep you safe. Paul wrote to the Galatians, he said, I'm in labor over you again until Christ be formed in you. He described uh, the, the anguish that he had for the Galatian church as a woman in childbirth. He said, I'm in labor. I have pain. This is distressing me. In my greatest imagination, the only human analogy I can make is I am in labor again until Christ is formed in you. To the Corinthians, uh, he wrote in his second letter to the Corinthians, With much affliction and anguish of heart I wrote to you, with many tears, not that you should be made sorrowful, but that you might know the love which I have especially for you. And I want you to know this morning that my preaching and my teaching is motivated by my love for you. I want your lives to be successful in the true sense of that word. I want you to grow in Jesus Christ. I want you to make wise choices. I want you to embrace following Jesus Christ in a way that brings blessing and joy 
and abundance to your life and for you to escape the consequences of the, of the bad choices that are motivated by the flesh that ultimately lead to destruction in one way or another. And I am constantly being confronted by Christians who are making bad choices. And they're making them because of their underlying beliefs that are contrary to the truths of the Word of God. And if I look at the church today and see one thing that is tremendously lacking, it is a knowledge of the teachings of the Scriptures. We simply are not biblically literate. And as a consequence, we do not have the information, the factual database that enables us to resist the lies of the enemy that are promulgated throughout society. And so what I want to talk to you about this morning, and quite honestly, this is my introduction to my introduction to my series on Genesis, because this is the big introduction, and next week is the particular introduction, and two weeks from now, I'm actually going to start preaching out of Genesis chapter 1. But this is the big introduction. And last week we talked about salvation. We talked about being saved and what that meant. And, and I hope you took away the idea that it is to be made healthy. It's to be restored to wholeness. It doesn't just mean to escape hell. It means to be fully recovered. To be revitalized. To be rejuvenated in all the right ways. Salvation is a term that encompasses total help. Paul says it in a particular way when he says to the Thessalonians, I want your spirit and your soul and your body to be sanctified and in good health. I want you to enjoy the prosperity that comes from salvation. To be... Saved means to be rescued from the consequences of sin, both eternally and in the present time. Eternally, it does mean to escape judgment. It means we're not going to have to endure eternal punishment. We're going to be saved from hell. We're going to be able to spend eternity with God in heaven. Eternally, it means to escape punishment. But presently, salvation means... To be controlled by the Spirit, not by the flesh. And thus to escape the painful consequences of bad choices that lead to heartache and an unexpected harvest of trouble, sadness, addictions, and broken relationships. Let me say that again. If you're writing... Write it down. Presently, salvation in the present moment means to be controlled by the Spirit, not by the flesh, and thus to escape the painful consequence of bad choices. You ever heard of the law of unintended consequences? You know, you you head into something uh, thinking you know how it's going to turn out, but, but you're sowing seeds that are not going to reap what you expect. They're going to reap something else, the unintended consequences. They're going to end up in a different realm. That doesn't always have to be morally deficit. I mean, you can uh, get unintended consequences in a chemistry laboratory. That's how most great discoveries happen is unintended consequences. Most of the great scientific advancements weren't because somebody set out looking for them, it's because they made a mistake. An accident occurred and it went, aha! And there was a new idea that was born from the error. But sometimes it results in bad results. So to be led by the Spirit, not by the flesh, thus to escape the painful consequences of bad choices that lead to heartache and an unexpected harvest of trouble, sadness, addiction, 
and broken relationships. My heart for you is that every one of you in this coming year will not have a harvest of sadness, trouble, addictions, and broken relationships. I want you to be blessed. I do not want you to be hurt. Paul says in Galatians chapter 5, if you have your Bibles, you can turn there. Galatians chapter 5, beginning in verse 13. Paul says, you were called to freedom, brethren. Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word in the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, take care lest you be consumed by one another. And then here's the focus of this passage in verse 16. But I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit and the Spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another so that you may not do the things you please. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outburst of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice these things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, against such things there is no law. Now those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires. The deeds of the flesh are evident, Paul says, and they're all the things that we see all around us in the world. Likewise, the fruit of the Spirit is also obvious, and it has all of those things that everybody wants. Love, joy, peace, patience. I mean, look at the list. Isn't that really what the world wants? But they're going about it in fleshly ways, and the harvest they're reaping is not the one they intended because they have believed a lie. God wants us to live lives that are harmonious with the Holy Spirit that we might enjoy that fruit, which is really the longing of our soul. What do we call salvation in the present time? If salvation in the future is escaping judgment, if it's heaven, if it's the presence of God, what is salvation in this moment? May I suggest to you that it is the term sanctification. Sanctification means to be set apart for God and in the process to become Holy. Now, the minute anybody starts talking about holiness, you know, everybody dials the clock back about 75 years and thinks, oh, good grief, that's that old fogey religion stuff. Holiness. Who's talking about holiness today? But holiness is no, none other than Christ-likeness. Are you a follower of Jesus Christ? Do you love Him? then you're supposed to look like Him. You're supposed to act like Him. 
When Christ is formed in you by the power of the Holy Spirit, you begin to reflect the character qualities of God. And those character qualities are love, joy, peace, patience, gentleness, and so forth. All of those fruit of the Spirit which add up to a lifestyle that can be called holy. Holy isn't, you know, walking around with your hands in just a certain way and and, and walking just a certain way and just being one of those weirdos out there that it's like, man, if that's religion, I don't want any part of it. Jesus was a friend of sinners. He was a friend of sinners. <clears throat> he was at home at a wedding feast. He was a welcome guest at a party. He was not offensive in that sense of the word. He didn't turn people off because he was weird. But he was God, and he never sinned. How do you explain that? Holiness is not intended to be odd or strange. It's simply Christ-like. And when you are truly holy, in the Christ-like sense, there is within you not only a godly character, but there is a winsomeness that other people are drawn to, not repelled by. Holy people do not make other people feel uncomfortable Because they're odd. Holy people have the winsome quality of the love of God coming through their lives. Well, how is it that holiness develops? How do we get saved in this present life? I'd like to invite you to turn back to Romans chapter 12 just for a moment. If you haven't memorized this verse. You can look at it, Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship, and do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Now, did you get that? First of all, present yourselves to God. You say, okay, I've done that. I came to Jesus Christ and I gave Him my life. Okay, give Him all of you. Take your hands off. Give Him your body. Give Him your mind. Give Him your heart. Give Him everything. Present yourselves to God. And do not be conformed to the world. Well, okay, but how do I avoid that? Well, by being transformed through the renewing of your mind. That you might prove, that is, demonstrate in your life (coughs) what the will of God is. Now, we're not talking about I wonder what the will of God is for my life. Should I be an architect? Should I be a missionary? Should I be an engineer, a plumber? We're not talking about that kind of will. That, that's part and parcel of, of the bigger picture. But we're talking about every day walking in harmony with the plan and purposes of God for you that day. Every day that you live. You may say to me this morning, I don't know what God wants me to do when I grow up. You may be 10 years old saying that. You may be 20 years old. You may be 50 years old. And you're still saying, I don't know what God wants me to do when I grow up. And I want to tell you this morning, that's okay as long as you're open. But just keep on doing what you're doing today. You got a job, go to work. If you're in school, go to class. Do whatever it is you're doing today. But in that day, God has a purpose for you. He has something that He wants to accomplish through you. How is it that that gets accomplished? By surrendering to God, not being conformed, but being transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you can 
prove today by our demonstration the will of God, which is good and acceptable and perfect. Your life is a living sacrifice of worship and praise to Almighty God because you have laid it on the altar and it belongs to Him and you are His and He wants to go with you and through you into every venue of your life and manifest His character. But did you notice how that happens? How it is that the will of God is worked out within you? It is through the transforming renewal of your mind. Now, I, I want to back up just for a moment. When it comes to the subject of Christ-like character, of godly living, of, is it okay if I use the word holiness? When it comes to the subject of holiness, the motivation for holiness is love. Do you realize that this morning? The law will never make you holy. The law will never inspire you to do the right thing. Fear of judgment is a poor motivator toward godliness. Most human beings on the planet have a sense that one day there will be a judgment. But today, they still choose bad behavior. Because that judgment isn't right now, and it's not enough of an incentive to deter them. The law has no power to make you holy. Paul said the law is good, but if it had any power, Christ would not have needed to come. Even when you love the law, it can't do anything for you. It can establish the standard, but then you're on your own. And you don't have any strength. Furthermore, you have a deficit. You have a sin nature that is always in rebellion to that law. And Paul says, if the law, if a law could have been given that would make you holy, Christ would not have come, had to come to the cross. So the first thing we need to recognize is that if you are going to be holy, the motivation that drives you has got to be love for God. And by the way, we love Him because He first loved us. When you see how much He has loved you, it has a tendency to kindle your love for Him. But love is the motive. The second thing I want us to be clear about is the Holy Spirit is the means. Even if you are motivated by love, you still don't have the power to obey. But God has put His Holy Spirit inside of you. He has indwelt you by His own presence. That in the power of the Holy Spirit, obedience might flow out of your love. And that the Holy Spirit could enable you to do the things that He prompts you to do. So that when the Holy Spirit whispers in your mind, you don't need to go there, you don't need to do that, you don't need to watch that, you don't need to listen to that, there's power behind that Holy Spirit inspiration to avoid the thing that He wants you to avoid. And when the Holy Spirit says, you do need to go talk to that person, you do need to say these words, you do need to do this thing, there is within you the power to do that because the Holy Spirit provides it. Love is the motive. The Holy Spirit is the means. But we cannot escape the method. Many believers today would like to be developing in godly Christ-like character without following the prescription that the Scripture gives. And the method is through the renewing of your mind. Something has to go on up here that changes the way you think. Why is that? Because we don't make choices in a vacuum. 
We make choices because we believe that that particular thing is going to give us what we think we want. Why does someone turn to a bottle of alcohol to relieve their anxiety and cover up their troubles in life and give them some relief from pain? They do that because they believe that the alcohol is going to do that for them. And they believe that ultimately that is what they need. And they don't think somehow that they're ever going to fall into the trap of becoming an alcoholic and become enslaved to that bottle. That's the unintended consequence. They, they just have sampled it and they know that they get a, a certain release and relief, or they think that if they drink enough, their normal shy inhibitions are going to be released and they will be more sociable. Maybe they'll get that girl they've been looking for. The only problem is, she's sitting at the same bar for the same reason. And now you have two dysfunctional people finding each other and making a dysfunctional mess. But the belief is that that's going to somehow get me where I want to go. People get into ungodly relationships because that other person is somehow meeting my needs. And we actually think that another human being can satisfy the deepest longings of my soul. I always find it interesting when people say, I found my soulmate. Quite honestly, I've heard that most frequently from people who are married and not to the soulmate. And it's like, what are you thinking? First of all, your soulmate is Jesus. He is the only one that can satisfy the deepest longings of your soul. I could go on with many other illustrations, but the reality is, is that we have a whole system. People pursue careers. They pursue material possessions. They follow all of these paths because they believe in their heart of hearts that if I just get that promotion, if I just become that uh, CEO or that manager or have this business or get that job, if I can just get this much money, if I can just accumulate that enough wealth to have that house or whatever. And they pursue these things. And when they finally get their paws around them, they turn to dust and they evaporate. And the feeling is gone. And now they have to go for the next thing. And the whole world is driven by a series of lies that says this is what you really want. This will satisfy your soul. Adam and Eve looked at the tree and they saw that it was beautiful. It was, it was gorgeous. They never really looked at it that closely before. The lighting was just right. The colors were rich and deep. The hues, amazing. The fruit was marvelous. It was beautiful to behold. They wanted it. It looked good for food. That smells better than any fruit we've sampled. I can just sense the vitamins that are in that fruit. It even has essential amino acids. And furthermore, it was chock full of mind-expanding truth. It'll make me wise. I want it. And... When they ate it in disobedience, all of a sudden, you know, they looked at each other and went, oh my gosh, you're naked. God is coming. In fact, where did He go? 
and they died. And the devil's off in the bushes cackling because he had just damaged humanity for the course of the history of the world. And they thought. You know, the sin occurred before they put the fruit in their mouth. They had already made a decision because they had believed a lie. Friends, the world is on the wrong course today and most believers because they have believed the lie. And the Scripture says that the way out, the way to Christ-like character is by being transformed in the renewing of our mind. We need a change of mind. We need to understand the world from a different perspective. We need to see clearly again. We need God to renew our minds, which is nothing less than the restoration of original thinking after the pattern of God's nature. My ways are not your ways, he says. And then my thoughts are not your thoughts. My ways are as high above yours as the heavens are above the earth. Do not lean on your own understanding, but in all of your ways acknowledge me. I will direct your paths. And so the method of Christ-like living is through a renewed mind. And the means of having a renewed mind is the Word of God. Look with me in 1 Timothy chapter 4. 1 Timothy chapter 4. Beginning in verse 7. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7. But have nothing to do with worldly fables fit only for old women. Ladies, don't take offense. On the other hand, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness... For bodily discipline is only of little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things since it holds promise for the present life. You see that? For the present life today and also for the life to come. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance. And for this, it is this that we labor and strive because we have fixed our hope on the living God who is the Savior of all men, especially of believers. Now, what on earth does that mean if not what I'm saying? Jesus Christ has come to save you, not just from hell, but right now. He wants to save you from that next big mistake. He wants to set your feet on a rock. He wants to make you solid and establish you. He wants you to be strong and wise and have good sense. He wants you to be mature and like Himself and to walk with confident steps and sure-footedness and, and a confident heart, not in self, but in the fact that you are rooted and grounded in the truth. You're not deceived, tossed here and by every wind of doctrine and the trickery of men by deceitful scheming, as Paul says in Ephesians 4, but rooted and grounded in Jesus Christ. And so He is the Savior of believers. Prescribe and teach these things. Verse 13, Until I come, give attention to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and teaching. Do not neglect the spiritual gift which was in you, through the prophetic utterance with the laying on of hands, take pains with these things that people can observe your progress. Pay attention to yourself and your teaching. Persevere in these things, for as you do this, you will ensure salvation. 
both for yourself and for those who hear you. Friends, this is the day for New Year's resolutions, right? Many of you have made New Year's resolutions. Many of you have made New Year's resolutions for years in the past and you've stopped. You've just given up. But many of you have made New Year's resolutions. Things that you want to accomplish in 2011. May I encourage you to make a resolution to be a people, a person of the Word of God. Discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. Some of you have made a resolution to lose weight. Some of you have made a resolution to exercise on a regular basis. Paul didn't say bodily exercise has no benefit. He just says it has little benefit. Of course, in those days, they walked everywhere they went. But he says, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. Did you know this is, this is a parenthetical aside? You can just kind of take this as, as an extra. But if you read four chapters in the Bible a day, by this time next year, you will have read through the whole Bible. Just four chapters a day. That's one way to discipline yourself. To study the Word of God. To invest yourselves in the Word of God. In fact, 2 Timothy 2.15 is not just for Awana. They did not invent 2 Timothy 2.15. Study to show yourselves approved unto God. Workmen that do not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of righteousness or of truth. The Scripture says, immerse yourself in the Bible. Look at 2 Timothy. This isn't very far, just a couple of pages. 2 Timothy chapter 3, beginning in verse 14. 2 Timothy 3.14 You, however, continue in the things you have learned. And become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings, which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation. And remember the word salvation is all-encompassing. And what is it that gives you the wisdom that leads to being saved? It is the sacred writings. How can you be smarter than the devil? Read the Scriptures. Immerse yourself in the Scriptures. Allow the Holy Spirit to be your teacher. We're about to take a journey into the book of Genesis 1-3. to And I'm going to lift out of those chapters all the teaching of Scripture that is rooted and grounded in those first three chapters. You're going to be amazed at all that is there in those foundational chapters. All the things that God tells us about Himself, about the world, about us, about our problem, and about His solutions. It's all found in those three chapters. But I want to tell you, friends, you do not have to be a Greek scholar, a Hebrew scholar, a seminary graduate, a Bible college graduate. You do not have to be someone who is schooled in theology and systematic theology and apologetics and all of those edicts and edicts and isms. You need to be a person who is open and humble before Almighty God and open your Bible and read it and He will teach you. He will give it to you. Don't let anybody tell you that you are just a lay person and you cannot understand the Bible because the Holy Spirit will explain it to you if you have a hunger to know If you desire to know the will of God and His teaching, He will teach you. He will teach you. He will show you. He will open your heart to it. 
Don't be led astray by the idea that, oh, I can't understand Genesis 1 to 3 because that was written in some kind of Hebrew special super secret poetry and it's got this special form to it and uh, it wasn't intended for me to understand in plain language. Listen, if God had meant anything other than what He said, He would have said it another way. The Bible is not hard. It's just a closed book to the proud, the arrogant, and the unbelieving. But if your heart is hungry after God, He will teach you His Word. Study to show yourself approved to God. A workman that does not need to be ashamed. And God gives us teachers. I'm grateful for that. I'm grateful because I am one and I've got a place that I can serve. And I will teach you week after week. But you go home and check it out. Go home and look it up. Go home and investigate it. If the Holy Spirit does not bear witness inside of you that I'm speaking the truth, then challenge it. Don't take my word for it. If I speak the truth, the Holy Spirit of God will confirm it to your heart and He will show it to you in the Word. Be like those Bereans who got out the Scriptures and every day checked out everything Paul said to see if he was speaking truth. Because God has given you that precious gift. He has not intended His Word to be obscure. And yes, I know that there are differences in translations and Sometimes uh, people, including me, make a big deal over, well, this verb could have been done this way and whatever. But I'm here to tell you that there is no little minuscule passage of Scripture. However you uh, turn it a little bit here or there, if you're true to the Greek or the Hebrew, that is going to make a huge major difference in the fundamental teaching of biblical truth. The gospel is the gospel. In every Bible and in every language it's been translated, it's simple, straightforward, and clear. Because it is the Word of God. Study to show yourselves approved unto God. And then Paul says, get invested in the Scripture because they are able to lead you to salvation. And he says, all Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness. That the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. We have a problem in our age. I'm almost done, sort of. We have a problem in our age. Look at chapter 4, verse 3, same book, 2 Timothy. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires. And they will turn away their ears from the truth and turn aside to myths. But you be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Friends, a day is coming, I believe we're in it, when men and women will not endure sound doctrine. All across the land, I see people departing from the truth of the Word of God. I see evangelicals departing from the truth of the Word of God. Seminaries are abandoning ancient values and traditions. They're giving up their commitment to the fidelity of truth that they have believed for decades and sometimes centuries. All across the land, people are looking for excuses for their behavior. We're trying to justify divorce on a myriad of different grounds other than the one that Scripture plainly allows and only for the hardness of our hearts. There is even recovery from adultery if you will humble yourself before the grace of God. But there is an effort among Christians to find all kinds of reasons to justify the violation of the marriage commitment. We're trying to justify homosexuality by genetics. We're trying to justify addictions, alcoholism, and even pornography and gambling by genetics. 
We're looking for all kinds of biological excuses for bad behavior so that we can absolve ourselves of guilt. And the church is buying it. And I'm not here this morning to tell you that genetics aren't involved. Our genes fell when we fell. They got damaged. But God has given us a moral standard, the violation of which there is no excuse, and He has given us His Holy Spirit to triumph over all of those things and to walk in victory. And I don't care what your genes are. You do not have to be a homosexual. You do not have to be a drunk. You do not have to be a sexaholic. You do not have to be a gambler addicted to gambling. You do not have to be any of those things. There is freedom in Jesus Christ from all of that moral failure. There is freedom in Jesus Christ. But the church is buying the lie in so many ways. In 2 Peter, this is my last passage of Scripture, 2 Peter chapter 3. You'll look there with me, the coming of the day of the Lord, verse 3. Know this, first of all, that in the last days mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lust, saying, where is the promise of His coming? I want to I give you the parentheses of what this really means on the side. When they say, where is the promise of His coming? What the mockers are saying is, there's not going to be any judgment. Oh, come on, people. It's just life. We're going to live. We're going to die. That's the end. There's no judgment. There's no consequence. Just do the best you can. Whatever you feel like doing is it. Where is His coming? Jesus isn't coming. There's no judgment seat. Forget all that stuff. That's what the mockers are saying. That's what they're saying today. Then here's what they say. For ever since the fathers fell asleep, everything's continued just as it was from the beginning of creation. Nothing has ever changed. Listen, folks, we climbed out of the slime. We used to be amoebas. Then we turned into fish. And one of them got beached one day and found out he could walk. And now we are here. And we live and we die. And a million years from now, somebody else is going to be here. Nothing has Changed. Everything's always been the same. That is the scientific doctrine of uniformitarianism. That's it. Everything is today like it's always been, including death, including the cycle of life. Don't let anybody kid you that death is a consequence of sin. Death is just normal biology. There's never been any change. Isn't that what we're hearing out there? And then he says, when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that the Word of God, that by the Word of God the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and by water, through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. That sounds to me like creationism and catastrophism. I think that upsets uniformitarianism. Am I getting ahead of myself? I think that disturbs the balance. Peter says it escapes their notice that God made the world and He destroyed it once. And furthermore, He's going to do it again. But don't let this fact escape you that a thousand years with the Lord is as a single day. Verse 10, the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. 
since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Because there is an end in sight. And those who walk with Jesus Christ are on the safe side. I have come to realize that I can tell people till I'm blue in the face, don't pursue career as your number one goal in life. Don't pursue money. Don't pursue sex. Don't pursue relationships to meet your deepest needs. Don't pursue alcohol and drugs and lust and whatever else, name it. I I can tell people that all day long, and frankly, it does not make any sense to them. Because the Bible says there is pleasure in sin for a while. It has immediate harvest of pleasure. For the moment, it gives you what you want. Nobody ever sees the hook in the bait. In the end, it destroys you. But in the beginning, it's attractive. It feels good. It kind of satisfies. People actually get euphoric. When they've got their clutches around their passionate desire, whether that's a person or a drink or a fix or a wad of cash, wow. And I am confident that one of the reasons that we're losing the battle in the church for practical godliness is because it's like pulling weeds in the garden by just nipping off the tops. We go out to the garden and we whack off the tops and we say, okay, I'm, I'm getting rid of the tops of these things. Or like I like to do every once in a while when I'm helping my wife weed, I'll whack them off right by the ground so, you know, they're not sticking up. You mean i got to get this little and dig those things out by the roots? Man, that's hard work. But we want to whack sin off at the top. We want, to, we want to talk about the secondary issues. Those deeds of the flesh that Paul talked about in Galatians. And we want to just kind of cut the tops off. The real problem, friends, is we have believed lies. And our choices come from our beliefs. And at the root of it, we need to get into the soil of belief and dig out the lie by the root so that we are not deceived by whatever form temptation presents. We need to know who God is and what He is like and what we can expect. People get disappointed in God because they expected something other than what He is. And when they get disappointed, they do dastardly things because they're frustrated and they believed a lie. We need to understand why there's suffering in the world and why there's pain. We need to know what's wrong with us. You ever wake up in the morning and ask yourself that question, what is wrong with me? Well, you need to know what's wrong with you. You need to know why we're broken. You need to know where we're headed. You need to know what life is all about. We need the truth of answers to the most fundamental questions. Because when we see it the way God sees it, when we believe the truth, and our minds have been renewed by the teaching of the Word of God, there will be built into us a fabric of faith and trust in truth 
that in the power of the Holy Spirit will keep us from deception. And what I propose to do this year is to expound the underlying soil of truth that will change fundamentally the way we view the world and life and God in the confidence that as our minds are renewed to think the way God thinks, we will become practically more godly and holy people. We will walk in a way that is pleasing to Jesus Christ. And you know what the fruit of that is? Love. Joy. Peace. Patience. Goodness. Gentleness. Self-control. All those things we try to get in a thousand other ways but we already have available in Jesus Christ. Father, draw us into your presence. And as we come to your table this morning to eat the bread and drink of the juice, remind us of the price that you paid to make this possible. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.